invite you to stand to pray. And also, we're, uh, we'll dismiss the kids here in just a moment after prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, that last song that we sang just, uh, again, points to that moment when safe we will meet at last. And, um, Lord, we're meeting together this morning as your children, um, but it's just a foretaste of, of what's coming in a time when we will meet perfectly and, um, and wonderfully in your presence. And, Lord, we look forward to that day. God, thank you for the hope that each of us has uh, as we trust you with our our lives, with our eternity. And um, and thank you, Lord, that you, you've come and that you have uh, not only saved us, but that you live in us and that you continue to change us day by day. I thank you for the work that you're doing in us. Lord, as we open your word here in a moment, um, we trust you to continue working in us, keep changing us, God, to make us more like you and um, help us to understand you better. Um, help us to to surrender areas that may need to be surrendered in our lives, um, to be aware of our own need for you, and uh, to respond and find mercy and grace at your throne. Thank you again, and we love you. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We do dismiss the kids um, to their classes. And while they are going, um, just by way of introduction, my name is Floyd. If you are new here, we are working our way through 1 Samuel. We're just a couple weeks into it, three weeks to be specific. And um, the first part of this book, uh, 1 Samuel, is it deals a lot with the, like the calling and the, um, the beginning of Samuel's ministry. And so that's kind of where we're um, spending a lot of our time here for the first few weeks. 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, verses 12 through 36 is sort of where I'm going to be springboarding out of this morning. There's, um, there's this theme in the book of, of Samuel, and it's this theme of this longing for a leader. If you were here the last couple of weeks, you, you remember that, um, that the time of judges is drawing to a close, like times where there were judges around Israel, but there was no singular leader. And the thing that it's, the last thing that it says in the book of Judges, the last thing that says about that period of time is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. That people were just doing whatever seemed like the right thing to do at the moment. In other words, however they felt was the way they went. And then they just rationalize it and, and just um, make sense out of it in their own minds, right? That doesn't sound that foreign to us. It's not, you don't have to look very hard to find a culture that is doing what is right in their own eyes. And as the story goes along, you see God providing a king to lead them and to establish a standard of righteousness, but he was just a picture of the king that was to come. And so, so 1 Samuel, the book of Samuel really, First and Second Samuel were initially written as one book, and it was later that they were separated into two because of the length. So the book of Samuel, um, it's not really about Samuel. And it's not really even about David. It's about King Jesus. It's about Jesus as our king. And it's pointing toward that, and we're going to see that again this morning. There are always 
sort of layers, especially when we're teaching through uh, what I would call the narrative books of the Bible or the stories. So Samuel is written by a narrator, and we don't even know who he is. We don't know for sure who wrote Samuel. There's some speculation. Maybe it was one of the, the men who just worked with Samuel very closely. Um, there's some speculation that Samuel wrote part of it. And then, you know, there's clearly parts of that that are written after Samuel passed. So we don't know for sure. But whoever the narrator is, he points to the story that's at hand but then there's often like a life lesson or maybe even a moral lesson that's sort of connected with the story. But then there's always the centrality of Jesus in the story. And so this morning we're going to look at things like leadership styles and talk a little bit about leadership because the text does that. We'll talk a little bit about how we relate to the world and the culture around us because the text points to that. And then, because the text is about Jesus, we'll also talk about Jesus as the great high priest, the faithful priest. So I, what I want to do is just give you a little bit of a backdrop before I get into the text. There is a, from verses 12 to about verses 27, I think it is, verse 26, there's this sort of back and forth contrast of telling story. Eli was the high priest in that day, and Eli's two sons were serving as priests. They, we find their names later. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And young parents, don't name your kids Hophni and Phinehas. You're going to figure out why in a minute. Um, contrasting Eli and his sons is the story of Hannah and Samuel. And you see, for Eli and his sons, the text starts out in verse 12, and it talks about Eli's sons, and it says that they are worthless men. I put that in quotes because I wanted to make sure that you didn't think I was calling them worthless. The narrator calls them worthless. The text calls them worthless. It says in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And it says right after that, they did not know the Lord. Now that's problem right off the bat. Because here you have people who are priests in the temple who are essentially responsible for talking to God about the people and the people about God. They would offer the sacrifices for people for their sins. They would, the people would bring their sacrifices and it was the priest's responsibility to take their sacrifice, bring it before God, almost like a, not almost, as a mediator and appeal to God for the forgiveness of the sins of the people who had brought those sacrifices. And the priest, of all people, was supposed to model what it looked like to live a life that was conscious of the holiness of God. Because the tension that they lived in was this tension of God who is perfect and who is holy and who has no sin. And people who are constantly falling into sin and unholiness. And how will unholy people approach a holy God? People who keep sinning, who keep getting it wrong. How are they supposed to have a relationship with a holy God? And so God instituted the blood sacrifice, the animals that would be sacrificed. Again, pointing toward the final and complete blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
But here's these two characters, Hophni and Phinehas, and they're, it says they're worthless men. They didn't know God, even though they're responsible for ministering the things of God to the people. There was a contempt for what was holy, as we're going to see in a little bit. And then they were, not only that, but they were oppressing the people who would bring the sacrifice. They were taking advantage of people. They would come, people would come, and they would bring the meat for the sacrifice. And if you go back and you read as God had set that up in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, and he told them that the priests were actually allowed to eat some of the meat, but he says, burn the fat, because God gets the best. And if you read the text, these guys are taking the best and giving the rest to God. And there's just a contempt for the holiness of God. And they're oppressing people, and so people would bring, and, you, and as you see sort of the, the, the tension, there seems to be some people who were aware that this wasn't right and would put some resistance up, and they would, they would just, they were non-negotiating. They were like, no, the best belongs to us. And then in contrast, you immediately go to verses 18 and 21, and you see how Hannah is continuing to care for Samuel. Verse 18 says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and it says that his mom would make him a new little ephod, which was sort of his priestly robe, and she would bring him a new one every year when she'd come to the temple. So there's this faithfulness in just the, the ongoing care and sacrifice, the care of Hannah for Samuel, and Samuel caring for the things of God. And then it says that God began to bless Hannah with more children. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Hannah was barren, and she was begging God for a child. And now you're seeing this faithfulness as she continues to minister year after year, and she's taking care of little Samuel, and she keeps bringing him a new ephod because he's growing physically. But he's not only growing physically, but he talks about how he was in the presence of God constantly. He's just growing in God's presence. He's experiencing the blessing of God on him. And you see the contrast of what's going on in Eli's household and what's going on in Hannah's household. And then it switches back over to Eli in verses 22 to 25. And it talks about not only were these, these boys of his, um, Hophni and Phinehas, were they oppressive, but they were also immoral. It talks about how they were laying with the women at the gates of the temple. There's, there's this immorality that's happening, loose sexually. And then, he, then Eli approaches them, and he tries to convince them that this isn't right, and he's talking to them about them, and they're stubborn in their sin. And they're unyielding. And because of that, God says, I'm going I'm to remove them. And then one verse back, it flips back over to the scene in verse 26, where you find again Hannah and Samuel being referred to. And in verse 26, it just says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature, so he's growing physically, and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And so there's the picture of Eli and his sons where it says that in, in verse 25, it says, they would not listen to the voice of their father and for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So that's the contrast. It's saying, there's, here's Hophni and Phinehas and because of their stubbornness and their immorality and what's going on in, in their leadership, God is willing and wants to put them to death. 
But on the flip side is Samuel, who is just serving God, and he continues to serve God, and it says that he grows in the favor with God and with men, and God's blessing was on him. And you see the contrast, and you can see, and you can predict with a pretty, de- pretty good degree of, of clarity and certainty what's going to happen next, can't you? Like, you can see where this train's headed. Because if you have gotten a death sentence from God, you're in a world of hurt. You're in a lot of trouble. That's worse than a death sentence from a government. There's nothing you can do. And what they should have been doing was falling on their faces and repenting. And instead they were stubborn in their refusal to acknowledge God and in their horrible leadership style. I want to read the, the rest of the text out of Scripture. And we're going to pick it up in verse 27 because... The, the text switches, and I want you want to call your attention to this. The text switches from verses 27 to 36. This is not the narrator talking anymore. It's God talking. Because it says that a man of God came to Eli and began to say to him, Thus says the Lord. So what he says to Eli is prefaced with, Thus says the Lord. And for the next verses, we find out what God is saying. So now it's not just the commentary on the story. Now it's God responding to the story and what's going on. So we pick it up in verse 27. It says, And there came a man of of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father would go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. I'll tell you what, when God starts to talk, you better pay attention. 
That's a sobering word from God. Because when God begins to address the situation that's going on with Hophni and Phinehas, he says, don't you remember how you were called? Don't you know who I am? This God is holy, and he's not to be treated with carelessness and lightly, but they were. And there's sort of several things in what God is saying to Eli that I want to call our attention to, and the first one being the reminder of their priestly calling. In those first verses, verses 27 to 30, God reminds Eli, didn't I call? Like he starts to ask questions, sort of these rhetorical questions, and he, re- he takes him back to not only his calling, the calling of God on the nation of Israel, but the, but the calling of God on the priestly family, and then that, that transcends down to Eli, and he's reminding him that uh, his hand's been in this thing, and that Eli and his sons are sitting where they are because of the calling of God. Because of what God has been doing in the history of Israel, they're sitting there. And that God in his sovereignty and in his power had gotten them to that place. And he says, I called you to this work. And he's reminding them that they are there holding those titles because of the mercy and the grace of God. Because God had called them to it because he had positioned them there. And you say, well, that's nice, but what's in that for me? Like, what am I supposed to learn from that? Well, if you were here as we were working our way through First and Second Peter in the last months, you would remember back in First Peter, remember what it says about priests there. It says that you have been called a holy priesthood and a royal nation. And in the context, in the dispensation of grace or Christianity or the church, however you want to refer to it, you and I who follow Jesus Christ, it says, according to 1 Peter, it says it twice in there, have actually been called to be priests. He says we are a royal priesthood. Now, you don't have to get weird about this. In fact, please don't. Um, don't, don't start walking around. Don't go get an ephod. Uh, to wear or start walking around telling people, well, I'm a priest or I have priestly duties or something like that because you're just going to freak people out and be weird. But there's a truth there that I think we ought to pay attention to. And that is that because we know Jesus, because he lives in us, there is no physical temple anymore. Since the time of Christ and since Pentecost, there is no physical building where the presence of God is. He dwells in the hearts of his people. And that's accepted New Testament Christian doctrine, I hope. So you and I carry the presence of God. But we also live in the context of a very broken world. We are constantly surrounded by people who are full of despair and anxiety, and all kinds of things going on in their lives. And how are they going to know the hope and the love that Jesus offers them if you and I don't share it with them? 
And so you and I also have a sense of responsibility, not in offering the blood sacrifices, because that's been finished with Christ. But you and I have a sense of responsibility to fill our priestly calling of talking to God about the people and talking to the people about God. And if you know anyone that's far from God, then you need to talk to God about them. But sometimes you need to go talk to them about God too. And that calling rests on all of our lives. And there is this reminder even as, this, as God is reminding Eli of his role, you and I need to pick this up and say, you know, we were called too. God graciously saved us out of our sins. He puts his spirit in us and he's called us to the work of being his representatives on earth, of carrying his name. And wherever you and I go, that we carry with us the, the love of Christ to the world around us. This isn't original with me, but it's true that you and I's lives are the only Bible that most people are ever going to read. Your life is the only Bible a lot of people are ever going to read. In other words, as we live out our days, work and school and friends and neighbors, people who know that we're one of those people, we've trusted Jesus. He's our Lord. We live our lives for him. They're looking at us, and they're saying, what do I believe about God based on what his children live like? Because that's the assumption. The sad reality is, that hasn't always been great. For the same reason that it wasn't great with Hophni and Phinehas. It hasn't always been a good priestly response or role for the same reason that Hophni and Phinehas were messing it up. It's because of a loss of the reverence and the holiness of God. See, underneath, underneath the, the taking advantage of people, using their position for personal gain, sexual immorality, underneath all of that, and, and God drills right to the heart of it. When he says, you've treated, it with, you've treated me with contempt, he says. And so God drills to the heart of that, and then he just says, I promise that your house and the house of your father would go in and out of me forever. But he says, I can't do that. He says, whoever honors me, I'll honor him. And there is this rejection of the careless leaders there. He says, why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? that I commanded. He's like, they're sitting there saying, well, we're not scorning them. But from the heaven's perspective, from God's perspective, they were scorning them. And he says, because of that, he says, I'll reject you. He says, I know I said that your house would go in and out of me forever. He says, I can't honor you if you don't want to honor me. It would be unlike God to impose worship on people. Worship is something we do voluntarily. He invites us to it. 
He calls us to it, but he doesn't impose it. And in the context of leaders who were treating him with contempt, he responds and says, I'll honor your decision. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word leader. But if you've lived very long, you know that there's a lot of good ones and a lot of bad ones. There's a lesson here, isn't there? There's a lesson about leadership that every one of us ought to get a hold of. Because it points along the way, all of us have some responsibility to do some leading. We've got people that are looking at us for direction and for guidance. Sometimes they're because, it's because they're our kids, co-workers or whatever. But we almost all find ourselves in positions of leadership at some point or another and being responsible to give some sense of direction to other people. And I would love to tell you that the Christian church has been marked by people who have never abused their positions of leadership. It's not been the case. There's been far too many stories of people who have stepped into roles of leadership with arrogance, with insecurity, with a lot of problems of their own, and have botched it badly. They've done a horrible job. And again, they, they have done so for the same reasons that Eli's sons did it. Because of a loss of reverence for the role that they carry. A loss of that sense of need. That sense of, I'm not the person that's important here, God is. The sense of, Lord, I need you every day. And it was appropriate, we just sang that song, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. That, that should be the theme song of every leader. The Lord, I need you. And an awareness of that on a daily basis. But boy, when, when we begin to get self-sufficient, arrogant, we, we build a high view of ourselves, and when we do it, we always build a low view of God. You can't have a high view of God and a high view of yourself at the same time, and neither can any leader. And wherever there's a high view of myself, there's a low view of God. And we've gotten something upside down. And there will always be consequences that follow that. And the devastation that has come through people in positions of leadership who have elevated themselves, mistreated others, hurt and wounded people that they were supposed to be sharing Christ with, the devastation is almost incalculable. It's what happens. And I think about this a lot for obvious reasons. The weight of that responsibility and having watched so many stories just even in the past few years of Christian leaders who became very self-sufficient 
arrogant, and end up hurting a lot of people. I'm currently reading a book right now on, on, um, about spiritual abuse. It's just this, I find myself very sad at times, reading some of these stories and knowing that I've heard too many familiar stories. That that leadership style that would take advantage of people in the name of God for the sake of personal gain. And I, I just say that with kind of a, um, a heaviness of heart and ask you, as you guys fill positions of leadership, to be the kind of leaders that are constantly dependent on God, constantly aware of the holiness of God and his power and his might. And then in a church context, to be in prayer for us as leaders. So, Lord, keep them dependent. It's a scary prayer because sometimes that process is uncomfortable, but it's absolutely necessary. And I think of the times, many, many, many times, sometimes just on a daily basis, of the sense of inadequacy and gap between what I'm able to do and what God's asking me to do. And I just get tired of it sometimes. And I find myself almost resisting it at times, and I think all of us can identify with that. You know what I'm talking about, this gap between where I'm at and where I know God wants me to be. And what would be the better place to be. And yet, as the longer I go, the more I see the gap as being necessary. It's actually helpful. And we can embrace it because it's the platform that God reminds us of our dependency on Him. That's how He does it. Because once you and I get to a place where we're self-sufficient, I mean, we got this thing figured out, just ask us the questions, we got all the answers. We become proud, arrogant, and I promise we will hurt a lot of people in the process. The people who are following our leadership and watching our lives are going to get a distorted view of who God is in that context. It is immensely important that our leadership style is from a position of brokenness and dependence on God. We live in a world, especially in, in a business sense, where leaders are elevated based on their successes. And you know what I'm talking about, the markers of success. Oh, man, this guy, he started a business, and he's got X amount, he franchised, and he's got X amount of business. Or this one, you know, they went public at, in 10 years, and they're definitely a success, and we need to hear from these guys because they're successful. Horse feathers. We don't need to hear anything from them if they have not been successful in the things that God says matters. If... if if they have not met the markers of success that God identifies as markers of success, men who live their lives with a consciousness of the holiness of God, who lead their families that way, who function in their marriages and with their kids and their churches and their community as people who model the love of Christ, who have a consciousness of God's holiness, then I'm not going to call them a success. I don't care how much money they've made. That's going back to 
a very broken worldly view of success. The culture can applaud all kinds of those people. They can applaud people because they've succeeded in the arts. So what? Or maybe they've succeeded at politics. Big deal. If they're not the markers of success in leadership that God identifies as success, then I am not necessarily going to take what they say as having any value whatsoever. Because it doesn't come from a place of dependency on God. Biblical, godly leadership is upside down from the culture. And the quicker we figure that out, the better off we are. We will not define biblical, godly leadership by the size the, the size of, of a business or even a congregation. You know, we do it with ministry too. Like, oh my goodness, we had X amount of people. Aren't we successful? No. Where do you find that in the Bible that God measures that as a marker of success? It's not there. What kind of a leader are you proving to be if God were to send a man of God to you and were to give a commentary on your leadership, what would he say? Would he say, well done, you've been conscious of my holiness and who I am, and you've transmitted that to the people that you lead? Or would he say you've been contemptuous, contemptuous, you've used your position of leadership to hurt other people and to take advantage of them? There's an incredibly important lesson there. But he goes on. And it gets really hopeful. Because up to this point, it's actually been kind of a dark story, a difficult um, pronouncement of judgment. And then he gets hopeful. And in verse 35, he gives him the reassurance that there will be a faithful priest forever. Because if God is rejecting Eli and his sons as the priests, that raises the question then, doesn't it? Well, then who's going to intercede? We, need, we still need a priest. We still have the same problem we started with. God's holy and we're not. And God says in verse 35, he says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Now, if you stop reading there, you could say, I think he's talking about Samuel. Like, maybe he's talking about Samuel as I'm raising up a faithful priest because he was in the process of raising Samuel up. We just saw that. And he actually is talking about Samuel, but he's not just talking about Samuel. And some people say, well, he's talking about um, David's priest, Zadok, that maybe that's who he's referring to. Well, he might have been talking about him, but he wasn't just talking about him because listen what else he says about this faithful priest that he's going to raise up. He says, and I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Forever. So that means that God says that I will raise up a faithful priest. He says, I'm going to raise up an intermediary who is not only... There, he's faithful, and he's constantly aware of God's holiness, and that he's, he's interceding on the behalf of people, but he says, I'll keep him there forever. 
You can't look at Samuel and say he was a forever priest. You can't look at any of the other priests that followed Eli and say they were a forever priest. Only Jesus Christ was a forever priest. If you go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, it actually helps us out really well and it explains this very well. It talks about the former priests, and that's talking about these guys like Eli and Samuel and Zadok and all those. It says the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That makes sense, doesn't it? It says you had all these, these priests throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of them. But they couldn't keep going because why? They died. And he says, but he, that's talking about Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues, there's that word again, forever. Consequently, this is an important word, isn't it? Consequently, so in other words, Jesus Christ has this priest forever, and here's what the results are. Here's what happens because he is a priest forever, and he's faithful. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is the best of news. And as God is coming to Eli, and he pronounces this judgment and this difficult word for Eli, I love the fact that he points ahead and he says, but there's one coming who is a faithful priest. He's going to be there forever. He'll never do anything opposed to God. And what, it, what happens when Jesus comes in the flesh? He says, I only do what my Father tells me to do in the Gospel of John. He says that. So Jesus Christ comes as a faithful priest. He's perfect. No flaws. And it says that he serves as the last high priest forever. And the result of that is that he is able to save, not partially, but to the uttermost, those who come. We don't use the word uttermost very much, but here's what this means. This means that there is nothing in your past or my past that Jesus Christ cannot forgive and save us from. It is complete. When Jesus died on the cross and he said the last words out of his mouth are, it is finished. It is because his work is complete and there is nothing that you or I can add to it. His priestly ministry ended the need for priests because he is the final and complete, total and sufficient high priest that we need forever. He stands as the mediator between God and man, and it says he saved to the uttermost. There is no priest that existed in the Old Testament that could ever have saved to the uttermost, because no human could do that. No human could offer a sacrifice that would save to the uttermost. We could push the mountain of sin ahead, but only Christ, without sin, in perfection, could hang on a cross and say, it is finished, it's done. He has saved us, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. And then, and then it doesn't stop there, does it? Not only do we have a Savior who has saved us from our sins, but it says that since he always lives to make intercession for them, and that Christ continues to make intercession for us before God. Revelation chapter 12 talks about how he is before God day and night. That we are the wonderful beneficiary, we're the grateful beneficiaries of a high priest 
who is perfect, who has taken care of the sin problem, who has saved us and who continues to live in us and make intercession for us before God, always. I can't think of better news. That's the best news I can bring because it covers it all. If you're like I am, you've got stuff in your past that I don't want brought up before God one day. And yet there's nothing that I can do about that. Like I can try to be a good person, but I keep screwing it up. But what I can do is just in simple faith say, Jesus, I believe that you died to cleanse me and forgive me completely to the uttermost, all of my sins. If you're here this morning and you have never prayed that prayer and you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from the inside out, today is your day. Today is your day. You can bow your head and you can just literally ask him and he will always respond with a yes, I will do that. And that he not only forgives us, but that he makes intercession for us constantly. That is the best news. Sermon in a sentence. Jesus Christ is a perfect priest who intercedes for us and he will never fail. And then I have another verse there from Hebrews because I love this verse and we kind of looked at this this morning in our prayer time. It talks about how he is a faithful high priest. He is, he is the, the last of the, of the high priest. And it says in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Do you ever have times of need? You're saying, are you kidding me? That's my whole life. I live with need. Constantly. What do you do with that? What do you do with your times of need? Now, if you don't have times of need, then we need to go back to the Hophni and Phineas word because you're probably resembling them more than you're resembling Jesus by far. I think for most of us, there's that sense of we do come to moments and times when we were like, we don't know what to do next. I don't know where to go next. I've got decisions that need to be made, and I don't know where to go with them. And they're times of need. And what you do with those moments and those issues is going to determine the trajectory of your relationship with Jesus. Either he is the great high priest, faithful and forever, that you and I can draw near to, not coming up sort of timidly, but he says with confidence. Not confidence in my own goodness, but confidence in his goodness. Confidence in who he is, not who I am. That's where our confidence is. If my confidence rests in how good of a person I have been, I will be perpetually insecure all the time. And it will affect everyone around me. But the security and the confidence that we have is because of the work of Christ, that we would come and that we'd receive mercy and grace. Grace to live out the days of our lives. Grace to address the issues of our needs. What's your need? What's your moment 
your time of need right now? Are you trying to figure it out on your own? Are you sort of trying to hatch a plan for how you're going to address the need? Or have you come to the throne of grace? And if you haven't, would you? Would you take the need that you have right now and would you come to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I need mercy and grace right now because it's the only place that I expect to ever find it is with him. He is the faithful, complete high priest. He's the end of the discussion on priests. And aren't you glad that God promised to Eli that even though the wickedness of Eli's household was going to end the priestly line in his line, that God would raise up a faithful priest forever and ever and ever. And man alive, one day we're going to be around the throne, we're going to see him face to face, and we will understand fully what we only understand partly now, and that is that we, we have been the grateful beneficiaries of a faithful high priest who lives forever. Amber, if you want to come on up, I want to bring this to a close. Actually, you know what? Hold on. I got a couple other things I got to take care of before we have that last song. Um, quickly, if you want to go into some deeper study, we've got a couple of those questions up there for you. And um, a couple of these are worth wrestling through or worth looking at, paying attention to. Why has God called you to be a priest and a royal priesthood? How does leadership affect the people around us? And, and then what's the difference between approaching God carelessly or boldly? You see, we've looked at them both, haven't we? The sons of Eli who were careless, and then the call of Hebrews, come boldly, come with confidence. What's the difference? Let's pray, and then I want to take care of a couple things. Lord, thank you so much. We love you. Every one of us here um, has those times of need. We probably... Uh, at any given point of our life have times of need. And uh, so, so, Father, I pray that your, your spirit would remind us um, in those moments of need that we are dependent on you and not our own wisdom, our own selves, that you have graciously offered to lead us and that as we come to you that we can find help. Lord, make us a praying people because it happens through prayer. Make us a people who, who immediately go to the throne looking for mercy and grace in our times of need instead of immediately being people who try to figure everything else out. Keep doing that work in us as only you can. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.